By AD 200, the Roman world covered most of the Mediterranean area and embraced and reacted to a wide, wide range of philosophic schools, such as Platonism, Aristotelianism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, Skepticism, and, and many others. There also appears to have been a growing interest in salvation cults. Christianity, the cult of Mithras, uh, Orpheus, or Demeter at Eleusis, for example. All of these cults or religious movements focused on what happens to our souls when we die. and They offer salvation through faith and ritual practices, be it bathing in water or bathing in bull's blood, eating opium poppies or something. A common thread to them all is the idea that we obtain salvation only by rejecting this physical world and grasping the true world, a higher reality. The Neoplatonism of Plotinus stands apart from these religious cults by rejecting rituals and faith as a means of discovering this higher reality. Instead, Plotinus will use arguments that point logically to our experience of an absolute unity. We might think of Neoplatonism as rational mysticism. In any case, there is harmony between reason and mystical experience. Plotinus will employ, in particular, the arguments of Plato, Aristotle, and some of the Stoic ideas to give mysticism a detailed and explicit grounding in reason. Plotinus wrote 54 chapters, which his student Periphery arranged into six books of nine chapters each. Enneads is the Greek word for nine. Plotinus wrote each chapter in one sitting with no editing. Here's the nitty-gritty of Plotinus. Everything in this world is an emanation from a single first principle, commonly called the One. To be accurate, remember that nothing can be said about this One. It is wrong to give it any name. Any name you give it limits it. We cannot place any predicates on it. Plotinus will usually refer to it negatively, calling it beyond being, unknowable, ineffable, beyond words. He sometimes calls it the Father, but this expression does not hold any Christian ideas of or of God as the Father. Instead, it vaguely means the source of what is. He will also refer to it as the good, and I'll say more about that shortly. The one is eternal. It is outside of time. It is beyond time. The one does not generate the world in a causal fashion because cause and effect relations are temporal. The one does not exert itself or use any effort because that would break its unity. Plotinus uses the metaphor of the sun here. The world emanates from the one in the way light emanates from the sun. It has the power of infinite inexhaustible emanation. The first layer of emanation is nous, or intelligence. We call this emanation a hypostasis. Nous, intelligence, is the second hypostasis, or we might say the second principle. Hypostasis is formed from two Greek words, hypo, meaning under, and stasis, meaning a state. Hypostasis is an underlying essence. The first is the one. The second hypostasis consists of nous, which gives us being as well. 
Think what Aristotle's unmoved mover. This hypostasis is like thought thinking itself. Nous is self-identical. We can use logic to create a difference between the act of thinking and the object of thought. The act of thinking is nous, intelligence, mind, but the object of thought is form or idea. Again, you think about Aristotle, when you see a flower, the form of the flower is what your nous grasps. In Aristotle, the unmoved mover is thought, contemplating all of the objects of thought, i.e. the forms, or species forms. In other words, the second hypostasis contains a unity of all ideas or forms, like all of the Platonic forms. These eternally existing ideas serve as the archetypes of the sensible world. The third hypostasis, the universal soul, or psuche, emanates from this cosmic nous. While looking towards the hypostasis of nous, the hypostasis of soul generates secondary souls, which contain logoi. That's the plural of logos. The Stoics argued that the world revealed this principle of organization called logos, or fire, or Zeus, or whatever name. These logoi generate the visible cosmos. The secondary soul is imminent in the visible cosmos. The final emanation from universal soul is matter. Matter does not exist simply by itself, but is demanded by the analysis of the cosmos into matter and form. Matter cannot exist independently of the one. Instead, it is the end point of logical analysis. It is the end of creativity. In rough terms, I've outlined the cosmic structure of Plotinus's descending scale of reality. But Plotinus argues that each human being can find this scale within as well. Our bodies are obviously part of the visible cosmos as particular creations of the universal soul. The higher part of the human soul is mind, or nous. Think of Aristotle's argument here that we share divine nous. Our nous is always active, although we might not be aware of this fact. Our nous has two kinds of activity, intuitive thought and discursive thought. Through contemplation, reason, we can attain a mystical experience of unity. We can grasp a vision of the one. So our self is a microcosm, and by turning inwards to find our true self, our true origins or source, we make an ascent to the one. In fact, the essence of the universal soul is not life, but desire. The desire to turn to or find the one. Everything seeks the one. And it is in this sense that the one is also the good. Philosophy ought to be the attempt to ascend to the one. The plan of Plotinus's writing takes us from the sensible world to the soul, to the universal soul, to the noose, and then to the one. As we contemplate each lower level, the inadequacies of each level reveal the need for a higher principle. We are driven by logic and reason, by philosophy, to find the one.